We're in Obadiah, so it's the fourth of the Minor Prophets. So you find Daniel, and then you move forward four books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Uh, when I knew I'd have the opportunity to do a series, and I knew it was five Sundays long, uh, you'll find it odd, the series I chose perhaps, but I chose the five books of the Bible that consist of only one chapter. Now, you might think that's because I'm lazy, because they range in size from 13 verses to 25 verses. So for books, that's tiny. But for sermons, I'll read, I won't read the whole thing, but I will kind of cover the scope of the whole thing. So I hope you don't think me that lazy. Our uh, text actually will differ. The title of the message and the text will differ from what's in the bulletin a little bit. It's not too much. But our text is Obadiah, chapter 1, the only chapter. But you can't find it in some lookups online when you only say Obadiah. So now uh, I'll read verses 1 through 4, verses, verse 10, and verses uh, 15 and 16. So let's hear God's word. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to preach from one of the minor prophets. Lord, you ruled uh, the nation of Israel for such a long time uh, through these men that brought your word to bear in their lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would have his words to bear fruit in our lives as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Obadiah is a little different, not just in that it is tiny, that it consists of only one chapter, but also in that it does not give attribution, really, to the time in which it's being written. Obadiah says, the vision of Obadiah, so we know he wrote it, we know he saw it, but we don't really know much else. And there are several Obadiahs in the Bible. There is the one that you probably all are mostly familiar with, and that's the Obadiah that uh, uh, Elijah met on the way, and then he told him, go tell King Ahab, and he remonstrated, no, do you want me to die? Uh, he was the one that protected the, uh, the actual prophets in the cave from Jezebel's wrath. And uh, I'm not sure if this is that Obadiah, and uh, yet there were two time frames in which this is likely because there is an indication 
that's unique about this. Now, Edom and Judah and Israel were always fighting, and yet we know here from verses 10, 11, and 12 that it's for this violence this letter is being written, and it was something that the Edomites did when Jerusalem was being sacked, and so that wasn't very often that that happened. Now, the two events that it could be are far apart. One is in 845 B.C., that was when King uh, Jehoram, who was, I think it was the great-great-great-grandson of Solomon, that was when uh, they sacked the city, took all the goods out of Jerusalem. That was an invasion by the Philistines. And then there was uh, a long time later, and this was like 250 years later almost, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar's invasion. And this is when Judah fell. And it's that one that uh, Phil and I believe occurred. It, this is when it occurred. Uh, there are a variety of opinions in commentaries and online, and yet it does seem much more consistent for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that there are parallel texts that convey the gist of what Obadiah is saying here, and they all pertain to the sacking of Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar came. And uh, the other is that because there is no king given as a reference, it's likely then that there was no king to form a frame of reference. And so all the Judean kings are now in the past, and Obadiah is writing this vision concerning Esau. There is no king to refer to from Judah's line. So there are similar parallel passages, Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 25, Ezekiel 35, but the main parallel passage is Jeremiah 49. It's, it's remarkably similar. Now, they're not identical, and sometimes you can find that in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, but they use similar uh, images, imagery for these. But I believe they were essentially then just saying that Jeremiah and Obadiah saw the same vision for the future of Esau, the future of Edom. Now, the outline is simple for the book. There's really, there are really just three sections. Uh, verses 1 through 9 is the prophecy concerning the fall of Edom in detail. But then there are, in the next seven verses, the reason why. Why is it that God is destroying Edom? And then the last five verses is a triumph of Israel eventually. Israel and Judah. Mount Zion will triumph. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's how the book ends, the very last verse. Then saviors, or uh, the uh, text will say, deliverers shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So in other words, another kingdom on earth falls to God to be his forevermore. Now, I want to read a few verses here. I, I don't want to read all the book, but I want to read a few key verses. So I'm going to read verses 3 and 4 again. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Edomites had lived in these mountains for a thousand years. Has anyone ever been to this area of the world? It's supposed to be beautiful. Now, if you like desert you would consider it beautiful. If not, then no, not so beautiful to you. But it is where Petra is, this, this uh, mountain city. I mean, that's Mount Seir. It, it's synonymous. And so uh, it is now a place. It's one of the wonders of the world that people love to travel to. 
But these Edomites, these descendants of Esau, had lived there for a thousand years. And that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Esau began living here. He was living there when Jacob returned with his large caravan from Laban, from the land of Panoram. So the Edomites, I believe, had every reason to feel secure in their mountain stronghold. They'd been there for a long, long time. But let me read verse 5. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off, would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? When Obadiah is writing, he's seeing this vision, and right in the middle of this vision, he exclaims, oh, how you will be cut off. Obadiah sees this in his mind, and he knows the Edomites will not believe him. It is so extreme what he's visualizing. And so he's seeing nothing. He's seeing the whole mountain uh, enclave, the cities of Edom being destroyed, laid waste. Verse 9, Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. And so they are going to be slaughtered. It's not long after these prophecies that this occurs either. It's probably about 30 to 35 years later that the Babylonians essentially destroy all of Edom. I'm not sure why. I don't know that Scripture is clear on that as the details of why Babylonians have done this, but we know why God had it done. And so we'll get to that. We'll walk through that. So the first question I have for you is this. With all of the fighting that has gone on between Judah and Israel and Edom. Why now? Why is it important that God wants Edom destroyed now? And I believe our text and other texts make that very, very clear in the Bible. So what does God have against Edom? Verse 10 gives us the summary statement. We read it earlier. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. And so the judgment falls because of violence that the Edomites have perpetrated against their brother Jacob. Verses 12 through 14, which is what I'll read now, give eight specifics about this. There is some repetition, but each one varies a little bit from the other. And let me read those. You should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction. And gazed means to gloat. Nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those who escaped. Nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. So, eight things. I'll summarize them. Gloated over your brother in the day of his captivity. They should not have done that. They should not have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. They should not have spoken proudly in the day of Judah's distress. They should not have entered the gates, so they went in too to help the Babylonians pillage and plunder. 
in the day of their calamity. They should not have gloated over their affliction in the day of their calamity. They should not have laid hands on their substance, so they're in their stealing stuff. They should not have stood at the crossroads, so they're outside of the city pointing out the people who are escaping to the Babylonians. Get them, get them, get them. And they delivered them up to them. So they killed them off themselves, they cut them off, and they delivered them up to the Babylonians. This is how much the Edomites hated the people of Judah. Now, I'm not really going to get into why they hated. Of course, from their perspective, they would have had every reason, perhaps. They would feel very justified in saying why they hate these Judeans. And yet, God doesn't even go there. He doesn't even entertain that. All He tells them is that for doing these things to your brothers... Now, when were they brothers? A thousand years plus earlier. So that's how long in time God is still calling Jacob and Esau brothers. And He's holding them accountable for treating them like brethren. So now, I want to read Psalm 137. There are lots of uh, references potentially to get into, but I, I'll only cite a few. But I want to read all of Psalm 137. Uh, this is just a very, very moving psalm, very dark. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation, O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed. Happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. So the writer of Psalm 137 is seeking justice for what the Babylonians and the Edomites have done to them because this was not a gentle uh, loss that Jerusalem suffered. They were slaughtered, just like they're asking the little ones of the Edomites to be killed. They themselves suffered that. It was at this same time that uh, Jeremiah wrote about this, that Ezekiel wrote about this, and now I'm going to refer to Malachi. Malachi wrote much later and he's writing about the fulfillment of it. And so let me read to you what Malachi wrote. It's right at the start of Malachi. It's chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. 
They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So Edom is, is this mountainous stronghold to the southeast of Judah. And here it is about 150 years after Babylon has destroyed them. And so the Edomites are again proudly saying, we will rebuild, we will rebuild. And God says, no, you will never rebuild. Not there, not you. And what's funny is here we are. We are 2,400 years after Malachi wrote these words. And that area is still desolate, is still not populated. The only creatures that are there are scorpions. Archaeologists in the 1800s wrote of visiting it. And they say that, yes, it's the eagles. That's why repeated visions of these, these birds of prey way up in their lofty eyries. And that's who lives there now, only them. Archaeologists go and they explore this. Now, of course, we get tourists by the busload perhaps going to see Petra. I don't know. But yet nobody's rebuilt there especially not the Edomites themselves. They actually, uh, in the form of Idumea, moved uh, west into the valley, but they never rebuilt in the mountains because God had said they would never rebuild in the mountains. Now, this whole book, these 21 verses, are all about the destruction of the Edomites, yet... I read verses 15 and 16 because there's something interesting here. The day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. So in the midst of this uh, diatribe against the Edomites, Obadiah has embedded this, that there is this judgment intended for all nations, for all nations that do as the Edomites have done. And so I want to broaden the scope of this message to not just talk about the Edomites anymore. I want to talk about God's principles of judgment. God rules in the kingdom of men. Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson in Daniel chapter 4. It's recorded for us. That's what he came away from that experience knowing. What was he rebuked for? Pride. He came out, he surveyed his kingdom, and in his pride, he spoke those words, I built this, and God immediately, immediately made him an animal. And he ate grass like a cow for seven years, it said, until he acknowledged that God does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And when he came to that realization, God returned his mind to him, and he was restored to his kingdom. Then in Daniel 5, Daniel is called in because this hand has appeared on the wall. Belshazzar is there with all of his princes, and they've taken the utensils from the temple that were only intended to serve God, and they were drinking from them. And then that hand appears and writes, mini, mini, tekel. And so he calls Daniel. There was this man that served your father. And so Daniel is called in, and this is what Daniel tells him. The Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints it 
over whomever he chooses. This is what Daniel said to Belshazzar about what his father had learned before him. The Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Daniel has extended what he has said in, in chapter 4. Listen. Listen to what was said in 4. God does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And so we just people, generally. But now, the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. So now, it's, Daniel is telling Belshazzar, God is going to take you out. And that very night, the city fell, and Belshazzar was killed. That very night, as Daniel was saying these words to Belshazzar, they had already dammed up the river. They thought their city was impregnable. And yet, the opponents had already dammed up the river, and it was drying up, and here they were partying with God's utensils in the throne room. And so, he's about to fall, and he didn't know it. God rules and overrules in the nations of the earth, not just amongst people, but amongst nations. Now, for us here, we probably don't think that's too odd. We are used to hearing that. But I believe this church is relatively unique in saying this. There are many churches that don't believe this. They don't believe it a bit. They don't believe that God rules. Sure, once upon a time, maybe he did, but no more. There are phrases that I know I've used in describing the Old and New Testaments, and I want to say them again. Have you understand why I'm saying them? The New Testament is in the Old concealed. The Old Testament is in the New revealed. These are, I believe, very true, succinct statements of what God has done in giving us these two testaments. But let me read you another statement that I think is equally perceived as true among many Christians in our, in our age. The New Testament in the Old was not expected. The Old Testament in the New is rejected. So do you see what I'm saying? Jesus came and really surprised the Jewish leaders, right? They knew all of this other stuff was coming, but they ignored the details of it. I mean, the Old Testament prophesied extensively of what Christ would do, how he would conquer sin, how we would open up a path for all Gentiles to enter into God's grace. The Jewish leaders didn't want that. That's why I said the New Testament is in the old, not expected. They don't want it. They're not looking forward. They want a Messiah that will break them free from Rome's tyranny. Oh, of course they want that. But they don't want what God was telling them was coming. And then we, many, many Christians in our time, look back and just say, you know, I might as well not even have from Malachi back. It's really of no use to me. It's just stories. They have no meaning in our world. And we know that to be a lie, but many Christians sadly believe that to be the case. Now, I had said that I wanted to talk about God's principles of judgment. And so I want to share some of God's judgments from Scripture. Let's just begin at Genesis and walk forward. So, we know that God judged Adam and Eve, right? Pronounced death upon them, both spiritual and physical. 
He cursed them. He cursed Adam with hard work. He cursed Eve with greater pain in childbirth. Then he ejected them from the garden because they were no longer in that privileged position to be able to draw from all of that that God had made so easy for them to draw from. In Genesis 4, God judges Cain for murdering his brother Abel. In Genesis 6, God pronounces the death penalty upon all mankind with the coming flood. He preserves those eight, but he kills everybody else. That's judgment if ever you heard of judgment, right? Everybody dies. Genesis 9, God ended, he judged, he, his principle of judgment is that he came down and stopped them from building the Tower of Babel. They were rejecting his direct command to spread across the earth that was true in Genesis 1, 2, true here in Genesis 9, and yet they're disobeying him. In Genesis 12, and I'll, get, I'll read this later, but you know that God promises right after Genesis 1 through 11, the very first thing we see is God calling Abraham and promising him that he will curse his enemies and bless his friends. And then later in Genesis 15, 16, he tells him, you, your people, will go to Egypt and will return four generations later when the iniquities of the Amorites is complete. So God is going to judge the Amorites, and he tells Abram that. He said, you, you and your descendants will go down there and then come back and be judged. Now, I want to go back through those and share you, with you the nature of those judgments. Genesis 3 concerning Adam and Eve. God judged... Adam and Eve, Adam specifically as the federal head of the whole human race for having broken covenant with him. We all remain under that broken covenant. So all humans are in that covenant, that creation covenant, that work covenant that, that Adam disobeyed. So we all suffer the consequences of that. Romans, Paul in Romans uh, discusses this very clearly. Genesis 4 concerning Cain, God judges this individual, Cain, for sin against his brother Abel. And see, at this point, they were still in covenant with God, still acting as if they were in covenant with God. God was walking with them. That's what happened. God is there in Genesis 4 walking with them. They bring him these sacrifices, and yet Cain is jealous, kills his brother. God holds him accountable. So God judges this individual. In Genesis 6, God judges all of mankind for this rampant evil that has come to pass. Now, we know by this time that most, many, are neglecting the covenant. They don't care. Only Noah and his family are found faithful. In Genesis 9, God judges them again for disobedience. He had told them to spread out, cover the earth, and yet they're refusing to do so. They want to stick together and be a big city, become powerful. And God actually says that there is truth in their words in part, that they will accomplish much in the fact that they're united in what it is that they want to do. They're a people. They're one people. So not only does God make languages to separate them, he makes nations to separate them. They become different peoples. There is no longer that unity that they've had while building the Tower of Babel. And then again, Genesis 15, 16, concerning the Amorites, God indicates here that there is a measurement system to sin that he is well aware of, that he keeps track of, and that when people's sin is complete, 
he judges. So there's an extent of his mercy that then is overridden by his need for judgment, for executing judgment. And he did that with the Amorites, and he gave us this principle of judgment. You're not going to see that repeated throughout Scripture, but he's shown us this principle here that he guides his behavior by. Now, I want to take these, and, and I could keep going through Scripture, but I think we've kind of covered enough that God definitely uh, interacts with us in judgments, brings judgments upon us for various things. But I believe through these examples and others I'll introduce that I can share with you five principles of God's judgment or five classifications of God's judgment. So first, we know later with the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 that God has established sanctions for disobedience. He has pronounced blessings to those that obey His Word and curses to those that reject his word. And then he had them carried out for hundreds of years, thousand plus years amongst his people, through the judges, through the prophets, through the kings, all of this. We know this took place. God judged Adam and Eve in this way too, for covenantal unfaithfulness. This is the thing. God judges those in covenant with him for their faithlessness. So that's the first principle. God also judged Judah and Israel for this in Amos. I, I preached about that a year and a half ago. That message cited eight nations. Israel and Judah were only two of the eight. Israel was cited for their sins, their many sins, but also for their idolatry. They had rebelled against God through their idolatry. Remember the golden calves. But the main rebuke Amos has for Judah is that they rejected his law. He doesn't cite any of their sins. He only cites the fact that they rejected his law. So see, Judah at that time was still in close covenant with God, and yet Amos is bringing the truth to bear upon their unfaithfulness. Whereas with the other nations, like the Ammonites, uh, Tyre, the, Assyr the Assyrians, he's only talking about their sins. That's why he's judging them. So God judges those in covenant with him for faithlessness. Two. God judges those in covenant with him for sins against others. I just cited Israel. Israel was still in covenant with God, close covenant with God. He regarded them as, by establishing those golden calves, as just being in error. And you know when you've read uh, Kings that you read about how the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam of Nebat, the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, repeatedly cite all of these kings that came after Jeroboam and refused to rectify what he had done in rebellion against God. They refused to take down those golden bulls at Dan and Beersheba. So they had embraced idolatry, continued to embrace idolatry for a thousand years, and yet God still holds them accountable, even all the way up to Christ's time. He's still holding them accountable as a brother of sorts to Judah, to the faithful, well, to the quasi-faithful that remained in Jerusalem. So, God judges those in covenant with him for sins against others. An example of this, I believe, is also Cain, him holding Cain accountable for his killing of Abel. The third one is God judges those outside the covenant for sins against others. Amorites, Canaanites, he had promised that in Genesis 15, and then he carried it out later when he brought the Israelites up. They were being judged because they were perverse and they were evil, and their sin had filled up. Their iniquity had filled up. God's mercy no longer extended to them, 
and judgment came upon them. So that's the third, outside the covenant for sins against others. But there's also the fourth, God judges those outside the covenant for rebellion against him. Nebuchadnezzar puffed himself up with pride directly taking God's glory upon himself, and God judged him. Belshazzar committed sacrilege, taking that which was God's due to be used in the temple, used it for his own purposes, God judged him. So you see those that are way, way outside of the Mosaic Covenant being judged by God for having shaken their fist in his face. Now, these first four, if you've noticed, are all similar to one another. The first two are those in covenant with God. The second two are those not in covenant with God, not a close covenant like Mosaic. And all I did was reverse the order. God holds those in covenant with him more accountable for being faithful to him. And think of this, the first table of the law, commandments one through four, honoring God, not idolatry not taking God's name in vain. This is all about honoring God. The second table, honoring man, respecting man. All he really does in enforcing these judgments is reverse them. With those that are outside of his close covenant, he's not holding to as close, a, as close of an account in honoring him. He knows they're into idolatry. He knows they're serving Molech, all these things. But yet, if they do get excessive, even in that, he holds them accountable. He brings rebuke upon them. Now, there's a fifth one. So there's a fifth one, and I believe it's, I'll read to you from Genesis chapter 12. So he gives the line at the end of chapter 11, he gives the line leading to Abram's birth. Chapter 12 begins, now the Lord has said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is Genesis 12. This is only 12 chapters into the Bible, and we have this Abraham introduced, through whom all the people of earth will participate in either blessing or cursing. One man, one nation, one people, one future, and this is how it's going to come down. This is amazing. Now, let me uh, ask you, for which of the five principles that I introduced was Edom being judged? Was it principle one, two, three, four, or five? See, I didn't give you a handout. You don't have a cheat sheet handy. And yet, it's the last one. The Edomites are being held accountable for what they have done to God's chosen people. And God is holding them accountable in a way that was prophesied here, promised to Abraham, that those who persecute you, Abraham, and your posterity, I will hold accountable. I will curse them for you. So, see, God tolerated Edom for a thousand years, and they were probably no less proud over the many centuries up until this time. But when they rejoiced 
over the sacking of Jerusalem, over the devastation of Jerusalem, God said, no, that's it. You're coming down too. And so he sent the destroyers to take them out because they were gloating over that. Now, why? Why am I preaching about this? Why is this important? I mean, what would this have to do with our time today? Well, what was true then prior to the time of Christ is still true today. God rules in the affairs of men. God appoints rulers over men, and he takes rulers out who are over men. Some New Testament Christians reject this, but what does Paul have to say? Paul in chapter uh, 17, verse 24 of Acts, I'll start reading. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So he's determined when nations will exist and where nations will exist. And his purpose in doing this is given so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by the art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance got overlooked, but now commands men everywhere to repent. So God is announcing through Paul that he is going to bring judgment not only upon this little portion of the earth where his judgment falls upon nations based on how they treat his chosen people. He's going to bring his judgment to bear upon everybody, everywhere, and he's already said that it's his uh, choice as to what nations rise and fall exactly when. You, you can't be an American and not have heard the term nation-building in the last 10, 15 years. That's what we do now in America. We build nations. We first destroy them, and then we try to build them. And yet, I don't know that we are doing it nearly as well as God does. And I believe God reserves the right to honor our attempts at nation building or not. Um, and I don't think that it's necessarily evil what we always do. Yet, with Iraq, uh, we spent an awful lot of money conquering that nation and putting a new government in there that has no regard for God. And I don't know that God will look favorably upon any governments that treat him with utter disregard. And so it makes no sense to me that our government would do this, no, not from a Christian perspective. And so that tells me then that our government is not operating from a Christian perspective, whereas once they most likely would have. So the Council on Foreign Relations wrote a report back in 2005 in February and it's very brief, 
It's interesting, you know, it talks about what was being attempted in Iraq to build a nation. It had a good definition for nation building. It's just trying to make a stable government. But of course, there's no reference to God. Why would there be? We're humanists in America. We're not Christians. We're not even Muslims or Hindus. We're humanists. So that's really the official, unofficial religion of America. Now, do God's principles of judgment still apply today? Yes, we know that here. But to whom, then, does the fifth principle that I introduced refer to? Is it the nation of Israel? That's what many Christian organizations now proclaim, that Israel was God's chosen people, he remains their chosen people, so how you treat nation Israel is then going to indicate whether you as a Christian are blessed or cursed. It is logical. It's even biblical. It's just not correct. So it's nice that these people are thinking like that. My own father-in-law is very supportive. Now, you have to differentiate between ministries to Israel, where you're trying to convert them to Christ, yet you have this other support that comes through our government, where we just hand Israel lots and lots of money all the time. And it has nothing to do with honoring God. So, do the principles of number, this fifth principle, apply to who then? To God's people, God's chosen people. And that's made clear in Romans again. You read Romans 9, 10, 11, you see who exactly Paul applies the promises of Abraham to today, us. We are the spiritual seed, the descendants of Abraham. And it is God that will continue to bless and curse nations by how they treat his people. He will take that seriously. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to the persecution of Christians around the world. God is very concerned about that. But note what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. What did the angel say? The angel God, what did he say there? He said that I have come down to investigate what I have heard of to know whether the height of their perversions are true, and I will know. But see, we know God knows all things, but yet he came through prayer. He came through people raising this up, seeking justice from God. And our God loves justice, and he will seek justice for all, not just his people even. He will seek justice for those that pray to him. Ahab, Ahab was so wicked. He was the most wicked king after Jeroboam until that time. Yet, he had sackcloth on under his royal robes, and God relented of the judgment upon him because the man humbled himself before God. And he was part of Israel. He was, he was, he was in, the, in the zone of trust, as we like to say at my work. So you got Judah there that's at the center. you got Israel that's next. You've got the Edomites next. God is doing this. He's relating more closely with these, and then as it goes out, it's less and less. So, both testaments of the Bible have value and continuing relevance. I know you know this. That's the first thing I want to say. God rules in the affairs of individuals and in the affairs of state. 
always has, always will. One principle of his rule is that he will protect his covenant people. But we must seek him. We must seek justice from him in order for him to act. He expects us to. It's our responsibility to do this. So again, God will always do this. He has always done this. And so let's avail ourselves of our just God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study it, to memorize it, to conform our lives to it. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would make it real to us, that we would not neglect its study, that we would not neglect its application. We pray that you would apply truth to our life, that your Holy Spirit would guide us and lead us and not allow us to be friends with sin, not allow us to go astray and just seek to do what it is that we feel will keep us safe. Father, we know that the safest place is in your will, is living in obedience to your word, and so we pray for that, the courage and the confidence to come to you, to seek justice from your hand, because you will not turn us away. We ask you now to hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.